This is the Exit Club Podcast, powered by Fratsky Media. I'm Laura Rich. I sold my business in 2017 and discovered that the entrepreneur journey doesn't end when the deal is signed. What comes next is largely left out of the entrepreneur narrative. You might think it's all unicorns and rainbows, but in reality, it can be a challenging period of recovery, reinvention, and a whole lot of unexpected hiccups. Today, I'm passionate about helping people who have sold their businesses and people who are thinking about selling their businesses set a plan for a good life after the sale. I draw on my experience as a business owner and a business journalist to speak with some of the most successful entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of their own post-exit experiences. Hey, everyone. My guest on today's episode is Judd Valesky, who founded social data analytics company Gnip, which he sold to Twitter in 2014 after six years for $134 million. Unlike many founders, Judd did not stay with the company past the sale. The decision to leave was less about whether he wanted to stay or go, and more about the one-time opportunity to cash in his founder's equity. He really opened up about leaving the company he founded and what has followed. Judd fervently believes you don't have to have an answer to the question, what are you going to do next? And talked about that as well as what he has been up to since the sale. I'm thrilled to share this compelling conversation with you. Enjoy. The company was a company called GNIP, G-N-I-P. We were a social data provider. We considered ourselves infrastructure for gathering kind of commercial grade, full fidelity, public social data. We had this belief that public social data was going to be interesting from a commercial standpoint. So this is also around the same time that Twitter was emerging on the scene. Um, it was just it was just right around that they had emerged. They certainly are not what they are today. You know, they were much, much smaller. One stat I like to use, if I can remember it, there's always the tweets per second stat. Messaging traffic rates are always an interesting measure of the popularity of a system before it's overrun by bots. And back in the day, we used to see tweet rates at like five tweets per second. And then several years later, you can be in 100,000 tweets per second. So built a business around that over the course of six years or so and spent a couple of years fumbling around trying a couple of different models and then a couple of years honing one that seemed to be working and then a couple of years of really blowing that out and scaling the business and then ultimately sold to Twitter March 2014 for 155 million. Very nice. I think at the time Twitter had done a very large number of acquisitions. I want to say it was in the neighborhood of 100. And we remain the most profitable business unit in the system today. And as an entrepreneur, all you ever want to see is your thing continue on. That that has certainly happened, which has been fun to watch. That's so great. I know a lot of entrepreneurs can really relate to wanting to have your creation live on and excel when it when it moves on. You know, I wanted to also ask you about what was your role when the deal came about? I know you're the co-founder. Can you talk about uh, what your executive role was at the time of the exit? Yeah, uh, let's see. So the time of the uh, the deal closing, I was CTO 
uh, my co-founder had since left. By that point, six years in, kind of that original innovative nugget that is there when one starts an entity was not. So that that kind of had evolved. And as a result, my role had evolved as well. And, and across that span, we had hired a seasoned executive veteran who ultimately became CEO. We had hired him as a CEO and then over time transitioned him into the CEO role. So at the time of the sale, it was he was in the CEO seat. I was in the CTO seat. But then what happened was that you ultimately completely transitioned off. Yeah. So as we were negotiating the deal, the prospect arose that perhaps original founder did not have to go through with the deal. And so we put a lot of energy into trying to discern whether or not that was prudent and possible. And, you know, obviously a lot of concern in the moment around potentially derailing the deal. Spent a fair amount of time trying to measure that, engage that, and, uh, you know, over the course of a few months, resolved that it was not going to adversely impact the impact the deal, the, the, the idea that mm-hmm. I would not go through with it. And right. So as things marched along, you know, obviously, obviously did not. So, mm-hmm. And you guys were kind of floating this idea with Twitter as you were kind of working it out on your end. What did that kind of look like? Yeah, it's uh, I mean, it was a really it was actually a, a really protracted uh, thing. I can in a nutshell, it's, you know, you start probing, you start probing the other side to understand what matters and what's going to cause a reaction and, and what's not. But, you know, on our side, it was, you know, our CEO, Chris Moody, had actually brought it up at one point. You know, he pointed out, you know, look, the the economics are, of the deal wound up flowing as such that vested shareholders could be in, in one financial outcome and non-vested could be in another. And so that vested outcome was significant. Yeah, after. You know, I actually owe a lot to Chris because, you know, the, I'm not sure I would have necessarily figured it out on my own that, that leaving was the most economically sound thing to do. You know, one of those once-in-a-lifetime economic dynamics, you need to look at it pretty seriously. And uh, and been there six years, and so my original founder stock mm-hmm. was fully vested. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, you know, there was no, in terms of negotiation, there was no um, kind of re-upping or resetting of any vesting dynamic on already vested vested shares. So uh, when the bulk of a founder position is ready to go. Yeah. What else are you going to do? The, the financial outcomes obviously significant. Right. That makes sense. But were you ready to leave the company? Did you want to go? That was the, that's what Chris helped me realize was um, yeah, I was. And, you know, when, when we first started down the path, that wasn't all that clear to me. So, you know, I was, I was moving forward with the deal negotiations as though I were, you know, still a part of the entity and trying to figure out the path forward accordingly. You expected you'd stay on through the deal. So then what happened? You know, through that, you know, it became, there was this moment of, look, it's been six years. Are you in this enough to essentially hit reset on the energy? right? And kind of go start up again. And the answer to that was no. I had done I had done kind of the rest invest thing 10, 15 years earlier through AOL's acquisition of Netscape. And it's a pretty miserable place to be. When faced with having it again, it was a very obvious, oh my God, I don't want to ever do that again. So 
Knowing I didn't want to do that, it would have meant a full restart inside Twitter from a dedication and energy allocation standpoint. And, you know, after six years in the social data business, it was, you know, it felt prudent to uh, to move on from that and, and take a break. So it all lined up. And so what was it like waking up the next morning after the deal was done? Yeah, so it was, uh, you know, certainly emotional. You know, you go from pouring your life into a particular thing, a product, a technology, a a team, a a day-to-day routine, and then, you know, the brakes, the brakes hit. And, uh, you know, for someone who is spending all of their energy problem solving and executing, Mm -hmm. it can be pretty jarring. So, so yeah, it was was suddenly, suddenly the car slows to a stop and you have to kind of reevaluate a lot of things. What was that like in terms of, you know, all of a sudden sort of not having somewhere to go, um, structure, was it sort of something like that? Yeah. And it was, it was knowing there wasn't a re-entry date, you know, I think a year or two prior, I had taken a, I think it was a two month sabbatical. And, you know, as with any vacation, whether it's a day, a week, a month, I would argue even a year, there's a re-entry moment that's in the back of your head. And so you can decompress, you can disengage, you can disassociate, you can distance yourself from whatever your, your traditional daily activity is, but it's always still out there somewhere in the distance. And so, you know, just different different headset when suddenly that's not there, right? Things start to get pretty existential in terms of, you know, what are you doing here? What's next? And so on. So did you start doing some soul searching or how did you fill your time? You know, the, you know, super early, I'm not, I'm actually not too sure. I don't really remember the, you know, I don't remember the, the specifics, but it, you know, quickly turned into embracing my creative side. So, you know, I've always been on the software engineering side of things and have never done a great job of blending science and art. So it's always kind of been binary for me, on or off. So I kind of flipped the science bit off and the, and the art bit on and really dove into photography and a lot of travel, a lot of landscape photography to, you know, go explore and adventure and kind of photograph the world kind of thing. And you know, that's gone on for a good four years now. And uh, it's been nice. It's been fun. Opening, opening up that side of your brain is a fun thing to do. You know, I'd like to be able, I'd like to be better at balancing the two. And so that's kind of life goal going forward is keeping those two things in some kind of symbiotic relationship as opposed to turning one off and shutting the other down at any given moment. What's really hard about this is I think what you were talking about before is that it's very open-ended and it's unlike a sabbatical or a vacation where that ends. Yeah, yeah. There's this constant notion of re-entry that surfaces itself in conversation with, you know, the leading question of, oh, what's next? Or, oh, when are you jumping back in? And uh, it's virtually impossible for society to get out of that headset. We have doing ingrained in us perpetually. It sounds like it's annoying to you. But I like that you've brought this up because I think a lot of people really do face this after selling their business. So you've kind of decided or you did kind of decide at the time that you didn't want to have to have something next. Uh, I I wouldn't say I decided that. There just wasn't anything there. It's not like I said, oh, there's not going to be anything. You know, certain milestones had been reached. And so, you know, I, I think often we 
continue to put goals and milestones out in front of us to progress us down a path. For me, there had always been this technical and economic path to walk down. And then when those milestones get hit, there's a there's a void. You know, there's a, okay, that's done. What else is there to do kind of thing? Yeah, I can understand that. Though you did go and work for some other companies and even participate in launching some yourself. Yeah, yeah. As 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 time, you know, as time moved on, you you get to perspective shifts and you get different views into things. And you know, I was able to see how my energy could be expended on something beyond just economic goals and economic outcomes, and instead more around environmental impact stuff, for example, and founded another company with some folks recently around bringing bicycle utilization to urban areas. And so I've been a passionate bike rider all my life. And the the idea that there's a new way to get people into onto bicycles and using alternative forms of transportation was a was a real motivator. What's the name of that company? It's a company called Your Bike, U-R-B-I-K-E, Your Bike. So let me ask you this. When the economic goals are gone, are the stakes a lot higher um, for finding meaningful purpose in how you spend your time on work stuff? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, using uh, Your Bike as an example, you know, once, once the tech platform was built out and you know, the actual technical capability of enabling this kind of sharing uh, model uh, was built out. My, my operational uh, interest in remaining engaged waned. So, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. So then it's time to go. It's time to move on. Yeah. So in, in this particular case, I moved on to Join full time operationally in another in an investment I had made a couple of years ago, kind of deploying my passion around building engineering teams and building software and building product again and in you know a different business. So you know tightly focused on uh, the software side and team construction stuff. I want to shift gears a little bit on you. Um, I wanted to ask you about you know your personal life or on the home front. And what kind of changes may have manifested there as a result of the sale or economic status? Economic status, not really. You wouldn't have noticed anything different at all other than, you know, I wasn't going into work. But even that wasn't even completely true. I had built, a, built an investment fund afterward and was actively making investments for a couple of years. So that involved some travel around that. So it was work, but just not kind of into an office with any kind of regularity. You know, the travel, the travel sides, that was an odd uh, shift. So, you know, when you have, when you, the more resources you have, you can quickly shift the way you travel. With a growing family, family vacations shifted. Take spring break, for example. You can really only wind up vacationing with peers that are in similar economic dynamics just from a a resource standpoint. And so that was a weird shift. You know, the trips we wanted to do weren't doable with a certain bucket of friends and multifamily travel took a strange impact or an unanticipated impact, I would say. Did it change your relationship with those families? No. I mean, insofar as you're not spending that time with them, sure. But overall, no. So something I wanted to ask you about as well, you have two kids who are school age and 
until this exit event, you were uh, going to the office or traveling for work. And now all of a sudden, you're home more. And I wondered, how did things change for them? Like more accessible because you're around more? Um, yeah, I would, I would just say that, you know, around more and um, you know, so more accessible, more available. For the first few years, I really grappled with that actually, because it's these are pretty impressionable years for them. Uh, April, stay-at-home mom, so she, you know, her role already baked in. But then this idea that the guy who had been out there winning the bread is now suddenly home is an odd dynamic, you know? So I, I have always kind of grappled with that. And I have friends that in similar situations who you know, manage it one way. I was always, I was always, I don't know, hard to explain or model for a kiddo that dynamic kind of work ethic and intelligence deployment and so on in a working environment when you're not in a working environment. So I, you know, I've always struggled with that just personally, you know, how that bears out for them. I don't fully know, you know, it's normalized at this point. There's already some of that in our community here in Boulder. So it's not completely foreign to everyone. Still, always kind of been an odd thing to me. So I hear it a lot from entrepreneurs who sell their businesses that it is just challenging to figure out that dynamic. Plus, I mean, raising kids is hard no matter what. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you also, we talked a little bit earlier outside of this conversation, a little bit generally about the post-exit transition and what happens after you sell your company. And I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, this sort of phenomenon and whether you think everyone goes through it. So no, this. everyone does not go through it. the same. Certainly no one goes through it the same way. I see plenty of treadmill people who just pursue exit after exit, after exit, after exit. In some cases, that's true love and passion for the components therein. And they just want more, which is admirable. And, you know, the pursuit of one's passions and, and goals is fantastic. Unfortunately, I think more often than not, it's people simply not knowing any better. Mm -hmm. It's all they know. Another thing I see over and over again is the, okay, I just did this. In order to stay relevant, I need to get back on the treadmill quickly. Otherwise, yeah. you know, whatever shine there may be on me might wear off. In some cases, that's economic. Their exit was not, did not yield financial independence. Um, in some cases, that's confusion around, you know, possibly who they are and what they want to be doing with their lives. But, and it's part of that, okay, what's next? What's around the corner? What are you doing tomorrow mm -hmm. thing right after the exit? And um, I shunned that immediately. I just don't believe certainly in that for me, like mm -hmm. for some people, that's undoubtedly true that if they lose momentum, that it's just part of who they are, they, they need momentum to continue. And if they lose it, they may struggle. You know, sometimes when I see an entrepreneur going through that, it's I feel bad. And it's like, you know, oh, you know, just stop, mm -hmm. go find, find out who you are, like, don't keep this thing churning. And then sometimes it's they're the, the true deep, passionate serial entrepreneur and it's like you know i'm i'm their biggest cheerleader where it's you know go 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 yeah you know this is who you are this is what you love don't stop you know and that's just like anything else when someone's applying their passion and their energy that's something that's a force to be reckoned with and it's awesome to see but it's mm -hmm. 
you know, again, a lot of times you see just dazed and confused looks and, you know, let me get back on the treadmill because I don't know any better. And that's always hard. Yeah, it is hard to figure out how do you get off that treadmill and what do you do next? Right. Where do you look around exactly. to start finding yourself? Uh, you know. Right. And what about for you? Are there some things that you like wish that you had done differently or wish had gone differently? You know, the the there was one there was one business thing I think we screwed up in the sale dynamic, we just did not have a marketplace. And, you know, we had a buyer of one, which if you're on the selling side is the worst possible position you can be in. Except you did do okay. We, we just did not have leverage. We should have staffed somebody full time, totally dedicated to relationship and BD management with one of uh, Twitter's competitors. Um, and we talked about it here and there. We just never pulled the trigger. And we didn't pull the trigger because it felt like it was going to be a waste of money. In retrospect, a minuscule investment and could have had astronomical upside impact to us. And so this is kind of really interesting because you guys did do really okay. And yet this is, this is what your lesson is to others. Can you talk about that a little bit? The way this translates into advice for entrepreneurs is that thing you think you should be spending passive money and passive energy on, you should consider making that more active and actually making a making a real investment. Like, you know, you asked something along the lines of any regrets. And mm-hmm. in retrospect, with 2020 hindsight, I think that would have been a prudent thing to do, despite the fact that it probably would have had zero ultimate impact, but I would have at least tried. Um, and what about like planning for, you know, I don't know how, how it's avoidable for it to be a sort of a shock to the system when you're no longer working on the company that, that you built and you were working at for, you know, the previous six years. But I wonder if you have thoughts on what can be done to anticipate what comes next. Yeah, we were chatting about this at coffee a little bit the other day. I it, it it's there's an there's an arrogance in planning for something like this, right? It's yeah. like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to plan for financial independence. I mean, heck, there's probably stu- superstition around it where it's like if you think too hard on it or you start assuming it or you start planning for it, you could jinx it. I hear what you're saying, but I I actually think that people can have a much better post-exit transition when there's a little more planning. Oh, I did want to ask you one last thing, and then I'm going to let you go, and I really appreciate your time and thoughts on all this. Um, Your airplane seat thing. You like particular airplane seats, and I was wondering what that's about and if your financial independence allows you greater, uh, I don't know, flexibility in getting those seats. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I've got a chunk of OCD and so uh, specific seats on a plane matter a lot and it's a twisted algorithm, right? It's plane type distance away from bulkhead distance away from back of plane aisle versus window in certain dynamics. Uh, Yeah. So it's Mm -hmm. its own twisted beast. But what's the, what's the goal? What's the ideal seat? Uh, it depends on the flight and the, the time 
and therefore the time of day, you know, and, and whether or not it's a commuter flight for you or if it's to a new place. A simple slice of it is if you're going to a geographically interesting place that you never go to, make sure you have a window seat on the correct side of the plane. A window seat on the wrong side of the plane is obviously doesn't buy anything. And it's funny, the in a conversation with a buddy of mine three or four years ago, we were talking about some of this identity stuff. He actually passed something along to me that a friend had passed along to him that I thought said everything. The setting was life before an event and life after event really isn't much different um, with the exception of when you board a plane after the event, you turn left instead of turning right. Turn left into first Point. class. Exactly. It's the same plane. Exactly. And that was yeah. kind of the point was there's a difference. It's subtle. And then at the end of the day, there's no difference at all. Right. Because it's the same plane going to the (laughs) The same same destination destination. with the same set of people on it. Like, Mm -hmm. so it's this kind of funny way of -hmm. of thinking about it. Well, you know what? I think that is a perfect place to conclude our conversation. I have so enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your experiences and great advice for everyone. Yeah, Um, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the chat. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Exit Club. If you liked the interview as much as I did, please be sure to subscribe to the show to hear more. If you're already a subscriber, please take a moment to leave a review or rating on iTunes or Google Play. The Exit Club is a new show powered by Fratsky Media, and every review and rating counts. Thanks again for listening. I'm Laura Rich.